KPCW News Time is 8.06. You're listening to the local news hour. This is Roger Goldman. It is really snowing here in Old Town. And we've got Thomas Geboy on the phone with ABC4 to tell us whether we're going to get some more. Morning, Thomas. Good morning, Roger, and happy Friday to you. And we do have more snow coming as we go through the day because we have our next storm system that's actually working its way in from the north as we speak. So this storm system is a little bit different compared to what we've seen so far this week with most of those storm systems mainly coming out of the southwest, tapping into that atmospheric river moisture. Today's more of a traditional storm that we would see for this time of year in Park City as that daytime high instead of being in the low 30s is going to be mainly in the upper 20s and we'll hold on to a 70 percent chance of snow as we go through the day and it's going to be one of those days where we could see multiple rounds of snow just kind of come in waves and in between showers we'll likely see either partly to mostly cloudy skies and as we go from today into tonight that's when that chance of snow gradually begins to go down and we'll see calmer conditions take hold as we go from late tonight through our saturday but in places like park city and the high country in general we still could see some lingering snow showers through the morning and then by the afternoon tomorrow i'm thinking we're going to settle into those calmer conditions so we'll see a high of 29 today in park city dropping to 13 degrees tonight so that's more like it for this time of year and we'll see a daytime high come in at 28 degrees for our saturday before high pressure establishes itself as we go from the back half of the weekend into early next week we'll talk more about that in just a moment but did want to just kind of talk about as we go through the day today in park city we still could see some additional accumulations, maybe on the magnitude of two to six inches in Park City, while Park City Mountain Resort and places like Deer Valley could pick up at least a few inches of snow with maybe on the higher echelon, higher threshold on the forecast models, picking up closer to six to 10. Of course, we'll keep our fingers crossed. And yesterday was definitely a nice surprise for Park City Mountain. And we talked about it yesterday that there would be the potential that we could maybe see a foot of snow and Park City Mountain, as of this morning in the 24-hour total, did report 12 inches of snow with 17 within the last 48 hours. So if anyone's heading up to the mountain today, free refill is going to be expected. But getting to Park City Mountain or just places in general could get a little bit tricky just because of how snowy some of the roads are. Just be careful on that drive. Now, going back to the back half of the weekend into early next week with high pressure in charge, we'll finally settle into that calmer stretch of weather, which will likely persist through most of next week. So from Sunday through Thursday, each day brings a mix of sun and clouds, and each day will likely be just a little bit warmer than the last. On Sunday, we'll see a daytime high of 30. We'll be at 34 degrees on Monday, 35 on Tuesday, 38 on Wednesday, and a daytime high of 41 by Thursday. And the night times will be just that progressively warmer as well. We'll be at 14 on Sunday night, 17 on Monday night, 16 on Tuesday night, so similar to what we have on Monday night. But then on Wednesday night and the Thursday night, overnight lows will be returning to the 20s, with maybe looking a little bit further down the road by next weekend. That's when we can move into a more active pattern. But today, kind of the last active day that we're going to see after this extremely busy week of weather that we've had so far. T Thomas, this morning when I was clearing the driveway, I, I, it, it felt as though the snow was, was light. Is it, do you have a sense of what the moisture content is? And is that kind of the result of the low temperatures? Yes, and that's exactly what it is, because as we've gone through the last several days with those storms coming in out of the southwest, it's kept those temperatures relatively high for this time of year. So in Park City, the average high should be just above freezing. So we've been kind of around that point, and when you have those warmer temperatures, you get that more dense and, I would say, just those heavier snowflakes. But when you have the colder air in place, those snowflakes aren't going to be as dense, and that's what's going to give you the kind of powder-like substance that we're going to find out there today. Looks like we're going to have a Chamber of Commerce weekend here in Park City. Thanks, Thomas. Have a good weekend. You're welcome, and you too. Let's find out what all this snow means for danger in the backcountry. On the phone, I have Greg with the Utah Avalanche Center.
Yeah, good morning, Thomas. And good observation about the, the, lighter, uh, the lighter snowfall. So this lower density snow um, has come in because we've had colder temperatures. And we call these snowstorms right side up. That is, they begin denser and they move to lower density snow, higher in the snowpack. Makes for great travel, great riding conditions. So, yeah, right now we, we do have just perfect skiing conditions in the backcountry. Um, however, uh, it is the backcountry, so there is always an avalanche danger. We're going with a considerable danger at the upper elevations and also considerable at mid-elevations on slopes facing west through north through east. Um, low elevations have a, a low avalanche danger. I'm going to talk about low elevations in a minute here. Um, the, the biggest concern I have going forward is our persistent weak layer. We've been talking about this for months now. And all the snow this past week is going to ultimately help heal this layer. But um, we gave it a, quite, a, quite a shock this past week. Uh, four inches of water weight uh, in the Park City Mountains along the Park City Ridge Line, six inches of water weight in the Cottonwoods. So that's a huge, uh, huge shock to the snowpack. And it's going to help. But asking people to be patient. Uh, it's it just going to take some more time. You know, I'm, I'm hoping this coming week we're going to be talking about the danger decreasing for the persistent weak layer. But for now, I'm just going to ask people to continue to be patient. I also think that in um, steeper slopes that are wind-loaded, you could trigger an avalanche in the storm snow. In terms of the low elevations, uh, Park City got a lot of snow overnight. Um, in some places, Old Town got more snow than up higher, around 10,000 feet. So for folks that are out um, walking their dogs or snowshoeing, um, you want to make, make sure that you're not underneath a steeper slope above you. We're not talking about a, a, a significant avalanche danger at those low elevations, but we're typically not used to it. So just keep that in mind. And if you feel like you're below a steep slope and maybe even seeing some rollerballs or some uh, loose snow sloughing, it's kind of an indication that there could be an avalanche. Um, so yeah, definitely keep that in mind. Uh, mountain weather, yeah, you, you heard it, um, you know, just ch Chamber of Commerce weekend. And uh, I think we're going to be seeing a decreasing avalanche danger um, over the next week or so. But yeah, just ask folks to be patient with that persistent weak layer. And the good news is this right side up snow that you described uh, is just making for perfect skiing conditions. So you don't have to stick your neck out. You can enjoy some great powder uh, outside of avalanche terrain. Thank you and have a good weekend. Thanks so much. You too. Bye-bye. Not surprisingly, all this snow is wreaking havoc on our traffic. Uh, we are seeing significant backups on 248, on 224. And a listener just texted us that I-80 East is backed up uh, all the way to Jeremy Ranch. So be patient, be careful. You'll get there, but take your time. Coming up on the local news hour, we're going to be talking with Greg Maughan, the South Summit School Superintendent, with his monthly update. Then we're going to be speaking with Courtney Worthen of Special Olympics Utah about their upcoming Polar Plunge event. We'll dive right into that. Economics professor Dmitry Tobinsky will then call in to talk about the economics of lotteries as a new bill is moving, is, has been introduced in the Utah legislature that might permit lotteries in the state. And we'll finish our hour by speaking with new Summit, South Summit Fire Chief Scott Thorell. Please stay tuned. The South Summit School Board had its regular meeting last night on the phone with an update. Is Superintendent Greg Mon. Good morning, Greg. Morning. How are you? Excellent. So, Greg, one item on last night's agenda was a legislative report. Uh, what did you report last night? Um, last night's legislative report wasn't real long. Their their bills were obviously following, and and uh, I give a, a weekly update uh, or a weekly legislative update to the board. But um, 
one of the things that I wanted to point out uh, in our meeting last night was um, as, a, as a JLC. I think the weather is um, messing up our cell phone coverage. Greg, do we have you back? Yeah, are you there? Oh, there, much better. Okay. You were, about, okay. You, were about, you were telling us about some legislation that you're following. Oh, well, so really, uh, we, I, I keep uh, the board updated weekly on, on legislative issues, but um, last night I really wanted to point out that as a JLC, a Joint Legislative co uh, Committee, we are generally opposing bills that are seeking to take away um, local control, specifically control from local boards, um, just because we think, you know, boards are, are locally elected officials and, and they tend to be able to solve the issues of their local area better than the state. Uh, so that was one of the things we talked about. The school safety bill, House Bill 84, um, and uh, and some of the implications for that, um, how that might impact uh, South Summit and other smaller districts with, with uh, smaller schools, and uh, and talked about how Repres Representative Wilcox has been great to work with. So those were probably the two bigger pieces of the legislative update. For our listeners who don't uh, pay close attention to playing uh, legislative number bingo, what uh, what is what is what was 84? Uh, school safety amendment. And, and what kinds of what kinds of provisions does it have in it? Um, it uh, the probably the biggest uh, kind of hot button topic, if you will, uh, of the bill uh, is around every school having to have some sort of armed uh, security. Uh, so one option is uh, school resource officer. Another option is uh, hiring a third party company to come in and provide armed security. Uh, and then the, uh, another option is to have an employee uh, who receives some training from a local sheriff's department, um, uh, have them receive some training, and, and then they would be carrying a weapon uh, uh, during the day as well. So um, lots of, as you can imagine, lots of emotion tied to that. Mm -hmm. Um, are there pieces of legislation that have already been passed, like uh, HB 527, which is, I think, commonly called the bathroom bill? Uh, will that will present particular challenges for the district in terms of implementation? Well, I think, I think um, anytime uh, something controversial like that's passed, it's going to cause uh, issues, and, and those will, you know, that, that reverberates throughout the state. Um, it, it, Schools have been dealing with this issue for many, many years, and um, you know, to to a lot of people's satisfaction, and and sometimes uh, people aren't satisfied with with uh, how it's addressed. But um, but again, it's addressed at the local level, and and in my experience, nine out of ten times, it actually works out to be a positive for everybody, um, and so. It's sure it's going to I mean, you're seeing you're seeing issues arise just recently around um, <clears throat> not specifically about the bathrooms per se, but about athletics and mm -hmm. things like that. And that's it's, we're going to have similar things come up around the bathrooms and the changing, you know, the, the locker rooms and changing stations and that. So it'll come up and, and we'll address it uh, as, as best we can. You know, it's uh, it's I mean, that's a really touchy subject. 
Are there, I know you're in the, in, on the Hill today for some meetings. What, what, are, is this what groups are you meeting with, and what, what are your objectives t today? This morning, uh, we have what's called the Cowboy Caucus. It's, kind of, it's more of a rural caucus area, small area caucus. Um, and then we have our, uh, our J, what, what we call JLC meeting. It's Joint Legislative Committee meeting. <clears throat> and uh, our JLC is made up of superintendents from around the state, and business administrators from around the state and uh, local school board members from around the state. And we go through bills, we, we, uh, we talk with legislators, um, provide input, answer questions, and then, um, and then at some point we, as a JLC body, will take a position or a stand on, on particular bills, whether that stand is to support or, or to oppose or to to uh, hold and not take a position. <clears throat> okay. Um, I saw on the agenda that you chose to highlight three students for their recent accomplishments. Alia Aste, yeah. Aspen Ames, and Dayton Fry. Can you share what each of those students has achieved and why you chose to put the spotlight on them? Well, those are three students who uh, will, will, be, uh, are, will be representing uh, South Summit for uh, Sterling Scholar. It's, three of them we we obviously have more but those three um specifically uh Aaliyah, last night she presented a, a new website that she's developed um and and uh, we're gonna go through and look at what what we can implement from that you know all of it or some of it pieces of it but uh, she did an amazing job and I, I think we'll be able to use um i think it'll have an impact that we'll be able to use um and you know as a district the what website she created is yeah, go ahead. I go was going to ask you what it was. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you what it was for and how you would use it. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, it's specifically uh, created to help support, um, in particular, our Spanish-speaking families um, when they come to when they move to South Summit um, and they're seeking information on how to enroll and just enrollment uh, in general. Um, and uh, and so she's. She's got, I mean, it's amazing. She's got information in there, you know, local places to eat, you know, um, just, it really is, she's de designed it to, to be a welcome to South Summit huh. uh, community. Wow. And, and you can feel that when you, you know, as, as you, as she presented uh, and you just see, you hear the passion in her voice about it, it it's, uh, it's quite inspiring. How about Aspen? Aspen, he, uh, he has created a tutoring program. He's been doing it for quite some time, actually, and um, he has a he has a, a pretty good group of of uh, students, high school students, you know, um, junior senior students who um, go down and they are um, they once a month or once a week they are um, they're running a tutoring program with students in the middle school. They run it after school, and um, they they have some great data behind uh, the success that students are finding that are working with with uh, with Aspen and, and his team of, of tutors. Uh, and so he he's really kind of actually systematized a tutoring program that's student driven, and um, and really connects with the kids and the. The, the one of the really neat parts about what he's doing is it's not just supporting the kids academically, but the kids are getting to hang out with older kids 
who are hearing that school's cool, you know, and I mean, it's, so it's just, it has an impact, you know? Um, and so that's, again, you know, just like Aaliyah, it's uh, with all of the students that presented last night, everything they're doing is unique and it's designed to their interests and it's supporting families and students. And, um, and it's very inspiring. You know, it's like you sit there and you think, man, there's hope for the world yet. (laughs) <laughs> that is encouraging. What about what about Dayton Fry? Dayton, uh, kind of similar or along the same vein as Aspen. Um, Dayton specifically focused on um, on science and trying to draw kids to science, really to STEM. But he focused a lot on science. Uh, it, it's it's funny. He he had a shirt made that says. Dayton Fry, the science guy, you know, and, <laughs> and he, he uh, goes and does demonstrations and labs and, and, and explains the science behind things and really just tries to get kids turned on to science. And, um, and he shared some data of, uh, you know, student, the, the, the number of students or percentage of students who liked science before they started coming to his, his uh, science support and, and then, um, and then he, you know, asked the kids the same thing at, at the end. And they, Greg, I think I think we've lost you. We've been speaking with Greg Mon of the South Summit School District. We'll get to follow up with some more questions when we get him back next month. We'll be right back after this. Well, a day like this, it seems like a good time to talk about something called the Polar Plunge. The Utah Special Olympics is sponsoring a Polar Plunge event tomorrow at the Mark. On the phone to dive into the topic is Courtney Worthen. Morning, Courtney. Good morning. How are you? Good. Courtney, so tell us, what is a polar plunge and why would anyone voluntarily jump into freezing water? <laughs> well, um, cold plunging is, is all the rage now, haven't you heard? It's supposed to be really, really healthy for you. But, uh, yeah, so we, we do a polar plunge every year. It happens across the nation, and it's a way for us to raise funds for our athletes to participate in sports. So, so, so let me get this straight. Not only do you get to jump into freezing water, but you have to pay for the privilege. Absolutely, okay. yeah, and your or your friends can pay. You know, <laughs> you can tell your friends if I if I get this amount, then I'll jump in. But if you don't raise enough money, then I don't have to. It sounds like a good challenge. Um, our challenge is uh, mm-hmm. a fundamental part of the organiza- of, of the event. Do people really, you know, seek out friends and say, okay, if if you guys will give me fifty bucks, I'm willing to jump into this freezing water. <laughs> there are a lot of people who do it, but then there are a lot of people who are willing to pay it and get sponsors and 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 just jump for the cause of it and and let's talk about this. it's gonna be over at the mark tomorrow yeah tomorrow there will be a pre-party at lucky one's coffee and then the plunge will begin at 11 a.m. and um, I think right now we have 30 plungers registered but the good news is you don't have to pre-register to jump so and, and what, what does a plunger have to pay what, what's the sort of minimum fee to, for the privilege so the minimum fee is 25 and and are you doing anything special or is this basically just the mark swimming pool um that that has had had snow falling into it or do you guys beef it up a little by throwing in some ice (laughs) um i'm not sure if we're gonna be throwing in ice tomorrow but uh we we try to make it as cold as possible (laughs) um there's a there is a costume contest to to spice it up a bit oh that's excellent now did you do this last year is this first time you've done it here in park city I believe we've done it in Park City before. Okay. Um, 
And, and how much do you and hope I, to raise? I think we did it at the mark this last year. How much do you hope we've to raise? Currently, we've currently raised um, just under 18000 um, and we're hoping to raise about twenty-five. And I know many of our listeners are really, really curious as to how long you have to stay in the water once you jump in. <laughs> as soon as you jump in, you can turn around and jump right out, or you can take a leisurely swim. Okay. And what kind of costumes do people wear for an event like this? Well, our uh, athlete CJ, who works at Lucky One's Coffee, or Lucky One's Coffee, has worn a Superman costume. We've seen um, minions and polar bears. You know, just just get into your Halloween box and whatever costume speaks to you. Okay. So once again, the details. Tomorrow there's a pre-party at Lucky One's Coffee. At what time? At uh, 8 a.m. And that's from 8. And then people will proceed over to the mark for the 11 o'clock plunge. Uh, will there mm-hmm. be anything after the plunge as well, other than blankets and chocolate? <laughs> <laughs> I, it looks like at 3 p.m. there's going to be Skate with the Princess at Park City Arena, but I think it's just get yourself warm and dry and then enjoy the rest of the Park City Winterfest. Okay, if people want to hear more, uh, is there a website they can look at? Yeah, so if you go to SOUT.org is our Special Olympics website, and all of the details should be right there. Okay, Courtney, thanks for joining us, and I, I hope you're going to jump in tomorrow. I've, I've had my fair share of plunges. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was an evasive answer. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back after yeah. this. Representative Kira Berkland re- recently introduced a bill that would allow Utah voters to vote on an amendment to the Utah Constitution that would authorize a state-operated lottery. That would be a remarkable change for a state that has long prohibited all forms of gambling. There's been a lot of debate about whether state-run lotteries are a regressive tax or a win-win, where people are making a choice that generates tax revenue. Economics professor Dmitry Tabinsky of Cal Berkeley has studied lotteries for a number of years. We're lucky to have him on the line this morning. Good morning, Professor Tabinsky. Uh, good morning. Thanks so much for having me here. Thanks for joining us. So let's start with sort of a, the big picture. How big and widespread are state-run lotteries in this country? They're widespread uh, and they're big. Um, we have them in 45 out of the 50 U.S. states. and. Another way of putting it is that Americans spend more on lottery tickets than they do on music, sports tickets, movie tickets, books, and video games combined. And what that means in terms of numbers is that just in 2019, for example, Americans spent an average of $679 per household on lottery tickets, which is $87 billion in total, and which directs $25 $25 billion to state um, budgets in total. So, you know, they're big, they're widespread, and they have um, important effects on state revenue. Yeah, that $679 figure is actually pretty stunning. Um, uh, it, it, that's an awful lot of money for, for a family. Um, particularly, my guess is that the distribution curve of, of who's spending that money is highly skewed. In other words, uh, that, that there are some families that spend a lot more than that. Yeah, that's correct. Um, A lot of families will spend nothing um, on lotteries, and then there are some who will spend even, you know, a lot. Um, So you're exactly right. So that sort of segues into the next thing I wanted to touch on. What does research tell us about who plays the lottery? Yeah, I mean, that's a big one, and that's a question that's been debated for a very long time. And, um, you know, these debates have also played an important role in various kinds of um, legal arguments. Um, and um, let me start by just framing it this way. There are really two opposing um, viewpoints. Um, one 
is that the lotteries are primarily purchased and in a sense almost exploit the less educated, the less numerate, the really financially vulnerable populations. You know, there's the worry that lotteries might be um, addictive, that they might be purchased during lapses of self-control, and that the people who play them have an exaggerated sense of the likelihood of winning. So that's one hypothesis um, that people have worried about for a long time. The other view, however, is that um, people play lotteries because it's fun. Um, you know, or because when you buy a lottery ticket, you're also buying the hope or the ability to dream about being rich and having financial freedom. You know, and in that view, buying a lottery ticket is maybe not so different from buying a movie ticket, for example. Um, now, here's what the data looks like. Um, my collaborators and I fielded a large uh, nationally representative survey um, that measured both lottery expenditures and a number of other characteristics that we thought could be related to that. And the goal of this survey is to try to differentiate between these two opposing views. And um, what we find is that, um, you know, on the one hand, it is true um, that um, people who are less educated, um, worse at statistics, have lower financial literacy, are quite a bit more likely to spend on lotteries. And there are also people who report sometimes having lapses of self-control when it comes to spending on lotteries. So some lottery purchases do seem to be due to what we might call um, errors in judgment or mistakes. But that's really not the whole story because a lot of people also say that they really do have a lot of fun playing the lottery and that they get a big kick out of dreaming about winning. Um, and these people are also um, quite a bit more likely to spend on lotteries. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, who buys the lotteries? I think it's both a combination of um, some mistakes and really genuine joy um, of playing. And as you, as you dive into the data a little bit, um, help us understand a little bit more about the percentage of lottery tickets, for example, that are bought by families with incomes under, say, $20,000. In other words, I don't know what the right metric is to, to sort of put a little more sort of quantitative flesh on that bone. Yeah, I mean, here's one statistic. So that you're right. So it's also important to understand how lottery expenditures vary by income. And, and so that's something we looked at very carefully as well. And, um, you, you know, it looks like um, lower income people spend a little bit more on lotteries than higher income people, but it's not a large gradient. So one statistic you can have in mind is that people with household incomes below 50,000 will spend 29% more on lotteries than people with household income above 100,000. So there's a difference. I wouldn't say it's an enormous difference. Was there anything in the data that surprised you as you sort of dug into these kinds of statistics? Um, you know, I, as a behavioral economist, you know, I always worry a lot about people making um, mistakes um, due to kind of lack of statistical knowledge and um, so forth. Um, but what I think surprised me in the data is actually how many people are purchasing lottery tickets, not because of the mistakes, but because of just the fun that they're having or because they're purchasing this ability to um, dream about winning and being rich um, and, and so forth. So um, my initial beliefs were really moved by the data in terms of, um, you know, how many people are purchasing lottery tickets for good reasons rather than bad reasons. That, you know, that's really interesting. I want to stay on it for a minute because if you, if you look at the advertising 
um, that the, the state lotteries do, it is sort of selling the dream. And I think a lot of people have an intuitive concern that people are buying them for bad reasons, for irrational reasons that they can't afford. But what, what you're telling us is that it, it, it's, it's kind of innocent that people are, they, they know it's not likely to pay off, but they do it because it's fun and they hope for it. And, and that's, a, I guess I would ask you, is, is, that's a ration, is that a rational expenditure as a behavioral economist? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is rational. Now, again, as I was saying before, you know, a good chunk of it is not what I would call rational. It's more about lack of um, statistical knowledge and financial literacy. So some people are making mistakes and they're misperceiving their likelihood of winning um, and so forth. But yes, a good chunk of it is what I would also call um, rational reasons. There's nothing irrational about buying a lottery ticket because it's fun. So, you know, we have this social debate, right, that you framed up pretty well. Um, you know, on the one hand, is it a tax on the poor and undereducated? On the other hand, is it just an innocent way, a win-win to raise money? Where do you come down on the answer? Is it somewhere in the middle? It is very much in the middle. Um, and, um, you know, when you do a formal economic benefit cost analysis, at least in my experience, that's where I almost always land. <laughs> it's rarely one um, extreme or the other, um, you know, and in fact, when we really crunch the numbers and try to figure out, okay, our typical lotto style designs on net, um, good or bad for um, societal well-being, the way they come out is they seem to be good on net, you know, just, you know, by a moderate amount. When you take into account the mistakes that people are making, when you take into account the fun that people are having, and when you take into account impact on government budgets. Um, but what we also find is that these conclusions are very sensitive um, to the exact measurement of um, potential mistakes and um, other factors that affect lottery demand. And so we're very careful about um, saying that this is just a preliminary conclusion. You know, for example, we talk about how if we underestimated the extent to which people make mistakes by, say, 50%, then our conclusion would completely change, and we would um, conclude that maybe we shouldn't have these kinds of lotto games. So we have a prelim preliminary um, suggestion, but I think in some sense the jury is still out, and we just need to continue um, generating the data and doing the statistical analyses to really understand better and better what it is that drives people's demand for lotteries. Share with the audience a little bit about how you get the data and what kind of an exercise you're engaged in and what the ultimate work product will be. Yeah, so there were multiple sources um, of, of data. So one is this large um, nationally representative survey um, that I discussed. And there we, um, uh, there we elicited um, people's lottery expenditures, um, both during the year, um, the, the most recent year and prior years. We elicited lots of financial information. We elicited um, people's ability to kind of um, reason um, statistically and, um, and their financial sophistication. And we also elicited um, various measures of potential lapses of self-control and how much they have fun playing the lottery and, and um, other factors that might drive demand. So that was one source of data. Um, the other source of data is just the um, available data on um, weekly um, demand um, for lottery tickets for big lotto-style games like Powerball and Mega Millions, as well as the variation in the jackpot, and in some cases, smaller 
prizes. And that other source of data we use to figure out how people respond to different features of the lottery. And so these are the two sources of data that we combined um, together with our economic modeling to try to reach some conclusions um, uh, about um, how good or bad um, lotteries might be. My unscientific uh, source of data tells me that as those uh, jackpots get bigger, there's a disproportionate increase in the number of people buying tickets. Talk to us a little bit about what, you're, what you've observed about the impact of high jackpots and the impact of secondary dairy prizes on consumer behavior. Yeah, so, so, so that's been a very um, interesting one. Um, so you're absolutely right. Um, people are extremely, extremely sensitive to variation in the jackpot. And, um, and we can measure this quite well because there's a lot of randomness in how large the jackpot is, which has to do with the parimutuel structure of these lotto-style games. And so that generates what economists call natural experiments. Um, so we're very confident in these conclusions when we have these kinds of natural experiments. So people are very, very sensitive to variation in the jackpot. They actually basically ignore variation in any of the smaller prizes. They just don't seem to pay attention to anything other than the jackpot and, of course, the price of the ticket itself. So the other thing we did is we went back and we estimated what was the impact of increasing the ticket price from $1 to $2.00. Um, for Mega Millions um, and Powerball. And what we found is that holding all else equal, um, increasing the price from $1 to $2 decreased um, people's demand for lottery tickets by 50%. Now that sounds huge, but just to benchmark how sensitive people are to variation in the jackpot, they're actually even more sensitive to the expected value of the jackpot than they are to the ticket price. So yeah. So to follow up, so when how how can we characterize the sensitivity to jackpot increase numerically? Numer um, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. So we just talked about a fifty percent hit on the uh, the one to two dollar move. Is there some statistic we can put around the increase in jackpot value? Yeah. So one way of thinking about it is when the jackpot um, increases um, uh, by a dollar. Um, demand will go up by uh, about 80%. Wow. And of course, that's, that's happening on a... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. By, and just to be clear, by, when, I, when I say increases by dollar, I mean the expected value of the right, jackpot. Right, exactly. <laughs> Let me be clear. So the probability <laughs> times the amount. So when your expected winnings from the jackpot increase by a dollar, demand will go up by 80%, about approximately. It's large. Which is why we have those, those flurries of activity when the, when the jackpot gets to be over a billion dollars and the line's running outside. Exactly. The yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks for spending time with us. Uh, we appreciate the insights that you have, and we may come back to you with more questions as, if the lottery bill continues to move through the, through the, through the legislature. Wonderful. Right. Great to chat. All right. We'll be right back after this. Well, traffic is a real mess out there. Uh, we had a listener send us a picture of the uh, of an overpass at um, on, on I-80 showing that uh, it would take 47 minutes to get to Park City uh, by a 224 and 54 minutes by a 248. So I-80 is very much backed up. If you look at the Summit County UDOT site, which has you know you know all the the major routes, right now it's showing that from Kimball to to Park City is is 24 minutes. From 248 from Quinns to SR 244 is 23 minutes. And from U.S. 40 to Park City Mountain Village, 32 minutes. Be patient, be kind to your other drivers, and you'll get there eventually. 
and you really don't want to do something that will cause you to meet our next guest. On the phone, we have Scott Thorell, the new Summit County Fire, South Summit Fire Chief. He joins us to update on developments in the district. Good morning, Chief. Thanks for joining us. And are you seeing some kind of incidents already this morning that you have to deal with? Good morning. Yeah, well, last night we had one. Um, luckily, nobody was injured. I uh, am sitting on the side of the road on 248 because I did not make it into the studio. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, so the roads are uh, are slick, and there's a lot of people trying to get to the new snow, and I think that uh, people just need to be safe and be kind, like you said. Okay, Chief, you know, you, uh, you, you recently became the chief. I think it was in December. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your past firefighting experiences that brought you here. So I've uh, got 30 years um, in the fire service. I, uh, about three years ago, retired from... Um, unified fire um, and most recently was doing some hospital administration stuff and I 15 years of being a flight medic um, concurrently uh, two full-time jobs with air med and I was the Park City base manager I have a few roots around the area from the time I was young I all day and milk cows and camas with my best friend and um, <laughs> and I um, have taught paramedic school at UVU. Um, I got uh, experience with uh, educating physicians at the University of Utah and correct care of trauma patients. Um, and I feel really lucky to have this opportunity. I started my fire career um, in Leeds, Utah, as a volunteer and moved to be one of the first full-time uh, firefighters in Hurricane Utah, um, and that was early on in my career, and now I get to come back, and this will be kind of the capstone of my career, I hope. And what are the major th things that you've observed in terms of um, change changes that you need to make since you came onto the into the job on December fifth? Now, are you the first full time fire chief for the district? I am the first full time um, employee for the fire district. Um, with the growth in the area and the increasing needs and specifically EMS service, um, it requires somebody to come in and, and build those things. And, um, and like, go, go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I was going to say, and, how do you break, um, get, break down your, your operation between the, the firefighting side and the EMS side? Well, as of January 1st, um, we took on the EMS responsibilities for the district. Um, previously, uh, the there was a volunteer service for many, many years. Um, and as things um, progressed with people having to work out of town and um, increase in calls, we've had to, or Park City took it over um, for several years. And with the growth in Park City, they were having difficulty um, keeping the level of service that the district wanted. And so the district and the county has decided that um, it's best that we have our own EMS service within the fire department. So you are the only full-time employee. Tell us how many how many other employees do you have? And then I want eventually want to get to how you use volunteers. So right now we're renting, I say renting, um, under contract with Wasatch County um, to provide us two uh, AMTs 24 hours a day, 365 days a year uh, as of January 1st. And that's something that Chief Eric Hales has done and 
um, Wasatch County has been just an amazing neighbor and gone above and beyond to help us provide that service. Um, I'm tasked with building the service this next year. Um, I'm recruiting locally and and trying to find folks that want to come and work for us um, within the community first. And if I have to, I'll go outside of the community. But um, it's it's a great opportunity. Now, as a mechanical matter, how do you rent an EMT? Does that person physically sit in your station? <laughs> yeah, they're they're in our station. Um, we've had several incidents where um, we've been, like last Friday, we were four deep into ambulances. Under the previous system, um, it would have been very difficult to cover those calls. Um, Wasatch County, under contract, um, as soon as our first ambulance goes out, sends uh, additional resources over to help cover the medical end of things um, and we've been able to cover the volume of calls without any delays in service so far um, so it's just been a great great deal um, for the district and again I want to thank Wasatch County. It sounds like a, a very successful partnership but again you know I'm still I'm still trying to envision what happens here so do, does there are two of these that you rent is there uh, do, the, do they is one of them there 12 hours a day and the other the, tw the other 12 how, how does it again functionally how does it work <laughs> so the way that we're doing it logistically mm -hmm. is that we have two um wasatch county emts that are under contract with us so we treat them as our employees okay. and they're um, residing in our station 24 hours a day wow. um also, we have two volunteers that take call time, um, and they're compensated, so they're paid volunteers, that assist those two EMTs um, on every call. It's really not efficient or safe or really even possible to run an EMS call with two people. With one person? Um, oh, yeah. With two people. Okay. So we have two people on the ambulance um, 24 hours a day. Okay. So what that means... Um, from a bigger picture is that we have six employees um, that we are using from, or six FTEs, if you want to look at it that way, mm -hmm. from Wasatch County. And then we supplement that with uh, two of ours that are on duty 24 hours a day. So we have four people that go out on every call. And let's talk a little bit about volunteers. Uh, uh, we've talked about, and mostly uh, well, all we've talked about so far is the EMT side as opposed to the fire side. Tell me how you're staffing with the fireside and how much equipment do you have? So we have um, the way funding structure set up. It's, it's easy to buy equipment. It's, it's harder to, um, to hire employees. So uh, we're, we're pretty well equipped. I have three stations, um, four with the old ambulance barn that we have full of equipment. Um, so the equipment is is something that you know we still have some needs but we're we're pretty well um equipped <laughs> as far as uh, volunteers go the south summit fire protection district has a very long history it started in the 50s of providing fire protection to their community and when the alert goes out um, the volunteers from the community, many of them are working in businesses in the community, um, are able to respond and to the station and pick up the equipment and go take care of the call. So uh, like a, a basic fire, a single family dwelling 
take about 20 people. Uh, we have four on duty, but we need 16 more coming from from their place of work, from home, and from other departments if we need it. Um, but they've, they've been very successful and, and I'll say very professional over the years, uh, taking care of the needs of the community. Volunteers, it's a, it's a real pure thing, and that's why I'm really honored to be back involved. I've always missed going and helping my fellow man for free. Um, and that's what these guys do it basically for free. And it takes a lot of dedication and, and bravery and, and, you know, just <laughs> the ability to be able to function in those situations. Um, you know, if, if, and not everybody can do it. Firefighting is not only dangerous, but a highly technical skill. How much training do these volunteers have to have in order to be effective at those jobs? Well, regulations say that um, we have to have certifications. Um, many people say, and, and there have been studies that, that say a fully uh, qualified firefighter has way beyond a master's degree in, in education and training. And um, we have to do that and provide that as a department um, on a on a on a shoestring. Um, the State Fire Academy is very helpful in, in doing that, um, and we put on our own training. We train um, at least three times a month, um, and then we put on other certification um, courses throughout the year. And that's something that. Um, as new people come on, they're not allowed to go into a burning building until they attain their certification. I've got a couple of courses that we've calendared out for this year for some of the new people I've recruited already, um, and we'll continue to do that. So what are your goals for the next year? Where, where would you like to see the district be in a year from now? So a year from now, um, my big goal, so January 1st, is to have four of our own people on duty um, 24 hours a day and in full-time positions um, and getting to that spot is going to be a challenge and we're going to have to be pretty careful um, with our funding and every dollar I spend on something else I look at it as as a dollar I could spend on and giving somebody a job and, and, and providing that service to the community so um, it's it's going to be challenging but i'm also very excited about because i think it's possible okay scott anything else you want to share with our audience before we go i am uh, looking for help so if there's anybody out there <laughs> that wants to volunteer or wants to have a discussion about um, opportunities in the future um, or if there's members of the public that have questions about what we've done um, we recently raised taxes in the district in order to be able to provide the service that the district needs, the public needs. Um, so if there's any questions about that, feel free to contact me uh, and I can explain what we're doing and, and where we're going. And how can they contact you best? What's the website or, or phone number? Which one? Um, my phone number is 801-554-7414. And again, that's 801-554-7414. And I'm very pleased to talk to anybody about anything regarding South Summit Fire Protection District. We've been speaking with Scott Thorell, the new South Summit Fire Chief. Thanks for joining us this morning, and hopefully you can get off the side of the road and get someplace worthwhile soon, Scott. Thanks, Roger. All right.
Connie Nelson has served as the executive director of the Alf Engen Ski Museum for the last two decades. She plans to retire at the end of March. KPCW's Leslie Thatcher has more. The Alfangen Ski Museum opened its doors shortly after the 2002 Winter Olympic Games. Since then, the museum has offered interactive displays, skiing exhibits, and also serves as the location for the Intermountain Ski Hall of Fame. Connie Nelson stepped into the role of assistant director of the museum when it first opened. Two years later, she was running it. I've seen it from when we were you know, first moving the media out from the, uh, the Olympics to now where we have three full-time staff and 12 part-time staff and uh, we're free museums. We work hard to ensure that public can go there seven days a week and uh, just enjoy the history of skiing with new exhibits each year. The museum was named in honor of Alfangen, a Norwegian who immigrated to the U.S. with his younger brother in 1929. Although primarily a ski jumper who set several world records in the 1930s, Engen is also credited for developing the technique of powder skiing, which he honed at Alta, where he served as ski school director. Today, the museum collection contains more than 300 trophies and medals, as well as skis and scrapbooks that span more than 70 years of the Engen family. He believed in children learning to ski and enjoying skiing. And what a lot of people don't know is he actually founded 31 ski resorts. He worked for the Forest Service. And they'd say, well, what do you think about uh, where the runs can go? So he would go up there and, and skin up and work out where the runs would go for Snow Basin, for Sun Valley, for Alta, yeah, and Snowbird. So he was a true legend and a humble man and a great namesake for our museum. The museum is open every day except Thanksgiving and Christmas from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's supported by a foundation that receives grants and individual donations. The board of directors is accepting applications for Nelson's replacement. She says the right applicant will have the personality for the position, which means being involved in the community and mingling with the 475,000 people who visit the museum every year as well as directing the staff and fundraising. So the person who enjoys the outdoor, enjoys skiing, enjoys snow sports, and uh, enjoys staff and uh, interacting with people. But yeah, we're looking for um, you know personality first and foremost, but also the experience with um, maybe a nonprofit, um, fundraising, uh, docents, looking at education programs. Uh, but yeah, lots of different areas, but we're looking for a really dynamic person. More information about the position and how to apply is at kpcw.org. Leslie Thatcher, KPCW News. You've been listening to the local news hour. Please tune in Monday for Mountain Money. We do our Super Bowl show where we have an ad man who watches all the ads and tells us which ones are good, which ones are bad, and which ones are questionable. Looking forward to it Monday at 9.